Hi there, this is Mila. And as you may have gathered here at Future Hindsight, we are serious about getting you ready for the midterms. In addition to our steady beat of election-oriented episodes, we are sharing a bonus episode with you from our friends at Civics 101. And this episode is about the difference between the Senate and the House of Representatives, how they work together, and, most importantly, what you can do to make your member of Congress responsive to your needs. You know, to actually represent you. You're going to come away better informed and feeling like an empowered citizen, which is how I feel after almost every Civics 101 episode. I've been listening to the show for a long time, and I'm really happy to share it with you. You can listen to Civics 101 wherever you get your podcasts. Mr. President. Without objection. Mr. President, I call up my amendment per the order. The clerk will report the amendment. Senator Mick, from Vermont. What is going on? Why are you making me listen to this? Okay, this is from a YouTube video from 2009, and it's called Senate Chaos. Senator Bernie Sanders from Vermont, he's just proposed an amendment uh, to a health care bill, uh-huh. and as usually happens, he asks the amendment be considered as read. Since senators usually get these bills and amendments in advance, there's no need to read them aloud. Objection. I object. All right, right there. Objection. Senator Tom Coburn from Oklahoma objects. Contents. The table of contents of this act is as follows. So the clerk has to read the whole thing. And it's 767 pages. All right, listen to this. And had the courage to change from green to red or red to green. How is that possible, Mr. Speaker? Whoa, what is going on? What is going on, Hannah, is the House of Representatives. Such a magical place. Welcome to Civics 101. I'm Nick Capodice. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And we are continuing our series on the upcoming midterm elections. Today, something many Americans are going to see on their ballot, and a question I've wanted to ask since day one at this show, what is the difference between the House and the Senate? They mostly have the exact same powers, with a few exceptions, which we're going to talk about, but they both propose bills that might become laws. Bills can start in either the House or the Senate, but they have to be passed by both houses before they go to the president to be signed into law. And while the presidential election tends to crowd out the attention for all those other elected officials on the ballot, the midterms are where the race for control of Congress shines, where expensive national political ads are replaced by local homegrown ads of people running for a seat in the House of Representatives or the Senate for the right to represent your interests, you right there sitting down listening to this, in the branch of government that proposes our laws. Now, of course, it's not just about the individuals in the office. It's about the balance of power, something that could change drastically this November 2022. And when you say balance of power, you mean which party has the most people in Congress? Right. And the party with the most people has the most power, has greater control not only over which bills are proposed, but also in leadership. And right now, the balance of power is tenuous. House of Representatives is expected to come very close 
Here is Civics 101's own personal Steve Martin, as in he's been on the show more than anybody else, Dan Casino, political science professor at Fairleigh Dickinson University. In 2022, the odds that your vote for the House Representative are going to matter are way bigger than they've been in any recent election. Generally, when the president's party loses seats in the midterm, this is called surge and decline, and it's a pretty complicated phenomenon we don't have to get into here. But the surge and decline pattern means that the president's party, in this case the Democrats, are expected to lose seats in the upcoming election. Now, the Democrats have only a narrow margin in the House of Representatives. If they were to lose the expected number of seats in the 2022 midterms, the Republicans would control the House by a margin of somewhere between 10 and 15 seats. And what about the Senate? The Senate is split almost completely down the middle right now. 50 Republicans, 48 Democrats, and two independents who have aligned Democratic, and the Democratic vice president, Kamala Harris, as the tiebreaker. That is a tight margin. Yeah. Now, knowing that, I'm curious how these two parts of Congress, the Senate and the House, are different. And what kind of power my own senators and representatives have. To really understand their key differences, we need to go back through the annals. Of history. Please don't do this. Oh, why, it appears we're at the Old City Tavern in Philadelphia in 1787, Hannah. Please, Nick, please. Why is that James Madison over there? The Sage of Montpelier? Oh, we already have a Congress. Yes, but ours will be different. Since our plan expands the powers of Congress, we will check that power by dividing it into two houses. An upper house and a lower house. <laughs> What is that from? You've never seen a more perfect union? The bread and butter of the eighth grade social studies class? Okay, fine. (laughs) Forget it. Scrap it. But what I'm trying to get at is that during the debates, the great debates at the Constitutional Convention, there was this huge question of representation. Who should make our laws? How many people? Should the big states have more power because they've got a bigger population? Or should all states have equal representation? And to make a long story short... We have ended up with both. We have a two-house government, a bicameral legislature. The names can be kind of tricky, though. So here is teacher and former California State Assembly member Cheryl Cook Callio. And so Congress is technically both the House of Representatives and the Senate. Members of the lower house, the House of Representatives, have always been addressed as Congress members, and members of the upper house have been addressed as senator. So a senator is technically a congressperson, but you would never call them that. Yeah, no, and the Senate is technically one of the houses of Congress, but when we say the house... We mean the House of Representatives. I am glad we got that out of the way. I have always wondered. The framers created a two-house legislature in order to make sure that the needs of the people as well as the states were addressed. Length of term is a major thing that differentiates the House and the Senate. The House of Representatives, the the length of term is shorter. It's every two years. It's a more frantic place. Uh, It takes on a, a sense of urgency. The Senate, on the other hand, is up every six years. So in the current midterms, about a third of those Senate seats are up for re-election, whereas you vote for new representatives every two years. Exactly. The next key difference is the number of members. Our current House has 435 members apportioned by state population. So, for example, California has 53 congresspeople, while we in the small state of New Hampshire have two. But every state gets two senators, no matter the population size. 
the founders were trying to give the public some power, trying to have some element of democracy. The problem is they didn't trust the people as far as they could throw them. They even called democracy mobocracy because they didn't like the idea of the people actually running anything. The reason we have the House of Representatives is to give the people a voice, but to make sure that voice can't actually do anything. The House is supposed to be representative of the people, but as far as the founders are concerned, the people of the United States were kind of like the people of Springfield and The Simpsons. They're ready to jump on any bandwagon with pitchforks and torches and protest against anything. And we've seen this repeatedly throughout American history. In the early 19th century, we had the first major third party in American politics, the Anti-Masonic Party, a party devoted entirely to a conspiracy theory that Masons were murdering people in upstate New York, dumping the bodies, then Masonically oriented police and judges were covering the whole thing up. That was their sole platform, not liking the Freemasons. That seems a little ridiculous, except those folks, the anti-Masonic party, won a bunch of seats in state houses and even won a bunch of seats in the House of Representatives. So why does it matter? Well, the founders saw this. They thought this would happen. So what they did was they made sure the House of Representatives couldn't really do anything. The House of Representatives is subject to the whims of the people. So if you anti-Masonic parties really popular for two years, guess what? They can take some seats in the House. But even if they took every seat that was up for them in the Senate, they could never control more than a third of the Senate. The House is there to represent the whims of the people. The Senate is there to make sure that the people can't actually get anything done. Now, that's inefficient, of course, but that's exactly the way the founders set things up. The people can pass wherever they want in the House, and it'll die in the Senate. Now, it may seem like Dan is saying the Senate is, I don't know, superior in some way or another. But I do want to add, the House does get some bills out there. So depending on how you want to run the numbers, uh, you get right now about 4% of bills in the most recent session of Congress that have been turned into laws. So overall, you're looking at about 16,000 bills and resolutions that get proposed. And this most recent Congress, we've had about 550 of them actually turned into laws. Now, that's because we are using a relatively open view of what it means to become a law. If we actually drill down on that, uh, it's actually closer to about 1%. The reason for that difference is that in the modern era of Congress, most bills that get passed actually get passed by being pushed into other bills. So the most recent example we have of that in 2022 is the what Democrats were calling the Inflation Reduction Act. This is a big omnibus bill. And what that means is they took about 30 other bills that they were trying to pass that they couldn't get passed and just smushed it all into one big bill. And nobody quite knew what exactly was in the bill, but the leadership said they'd read it and the staff read it, so we're cool with that. And they passed that. So that's a whole bunch of other bills that we can consider as being passed because they were pushed into this larger omnibus bill. Now, when we talk about laws being passed, yeah, something like the Inflation Reduction Act is the thing we think about. Yes, this is a big bill, this is an important bill. That's actually not very representative of what most bills are. And so that number of 4% or yeah, about 550, 600 bills getting passed is really over-representing what actually is going on in Congress. And most of them are pretty uncontroversial bills. So like naming a holiday or yeah. something like that. Okay. So to give an example, the same month that you got the Inflation Reduction Act, we also got Reese's Law, which is a law that would require the Consumer Product Safety Commission to put labels on button batteries to make it harder for children to open them. Okay. I mean, not, you know, the most important thing to the history of the public, but okay. My personal favorite is H.R. 1444. And this is a bill 
I'm going to give a full title. To designate the facility United States Postal Service located at 132 North Loudon Street, Suite 1 in Winchester, Virginia, as the Patsy Klein Post Office. How about giving yourself a little applause there? <laughs> These are the sort of bills that actually get passed in the regular. So we say 600 bills get passed. Most of those are telling people to make coins and naming post offices. We simply don't do a whole lot. I want to know what they think of each other. Does the house have like an inferiority complex? Well, let, let's see what they have to say for themselves. So I got a former Senate staffer, Justin LeBlanc. We jokingly often refer to uh, to the House and the Senate uh, with reference to what the British Parliament calls them, and that is obviously the House of Commons and the House of Lords. And a former House staffer, <laughs> Andy Wilson. Despite the House and the Senate being co-equal, branches of government, there's very much a feeling of that the Senate is sort of the upper chamber. Wait, are they co-equal? They are, but that doesn't stop the sense that one of them is more formal. A little more hoity-toity, if you will. It's more dignified, etc. So there's sort of a different feeling about even the Senate side of the Capitol complex versus the House side. Justin and Andy have both left Congress since. Justin is now the founder and president of LobbyWise, and Andy works for a PR firm in New York City. Well, I'm a, I'm a House guy, so uh, I quite enjoyed the, the, the free-flowing nature of the House. Um, other, member, other people that might have worked in the Senate might, might feel more proud of having sort of that stately Senate vibe, but I like the House. I think I might be a House gal. It sounds a little more fun, doesn't it? Yeah. I want to make it clear, Andy and Justin were in no way throwing shade towards each other's chambers, but there is some good-natured ribbing that goes on. So I've got a good feel for their differences due to size and term length, but what are the specific differences in their powers? Uh, here's what Justin said about that. I think the, the most significant uh, difference between the Senate and the House uh, really comes down to uh, two things. While they both have to pass uh, legislation and they have to pass the identical legislation in each chamber before it can go to the president for signature, only the Senate has the constitutional responsibility and authority to advise and consent the White House on treaties. And so any treaty agreed to by the White House has to be approved by the United States Senate. The House does not have such similar authority. And not just treaties, but the Senate confirms all presidential appointments, cabinet secretaries. Like Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, etc. Yeah, and ambassadors, and the big one, Supreme Court justices. Which is a pretty big deal, especially recently. Right. Four of our nine current justices were appointed in the last five years. And then on the flip side, uh, all appropriations measures, that is all measures that fund the federal government, those bills must begin in the House. The Senate does not have the authority to initiate an appropriations process. This has a fun name, by the way. It's called the power of the purse. The framers wanted the House, the voice of the people, to be dominant when it comes to how we tax and spend money. The Senate cannot make money bills. But besides money, there's also impeachment powers. Here's Cheryl Cuccaglio again. The other specific job the House of Representatives have is that any articles of impeachment for any elected federal official goes through the House of Representatives. If they are passed in the House of Representatives, the trial is held in the Senate. Uh, that's a specific job of each house. If you had told me in 2018 when we first did a series on the midterms that in a mere four years, our Supreme Court would look so different and we would have had two impeachments, I probably would not have believed you. Yeah, I wouldn't have believed myself, Hannah. There is another big difference between the House and the Senate, and it has to do with voting 
and power. In the House, it's majority rule. So in order to pass a piece of legislation in the House, it's 50% of the votes plus one. So if, you know, if the Republicans have a 20-seat majority, they can basically do whatever they want. Spinning the rules and passing H.R. 3109, if ordered, this is a 15-minute vote. Whereas in the Senate, people might be familiar with the filibuster, which frequently requires 60 votes for something to pass. You know, 60% uh, of, the, of the Senate has to agree for something to be passed, which requires a greater deal of consensus, a greater deal of coalition building. Even when uh, a party is in the majority, they may not have enough to pass that 60-vote threshold. And so you have to work with the opposing party or at least some members of the opposing party. So in my mind's eye, the Senate is sort of like a buttoned-up dinner party with scallops wrapped in bacon and a string quartet in the background. Whereas the House is more like the big party you throw where too many people show up and nobody goes home till 4 in the morning. The House of Representatives has 435 voting members. Now, the problem is that that's so many people that you're never going to be able to wrangle all of them. If you let everybody talk, they're never going to shut up. If there's one thing politicians love, it's the sound of their own voice. So as a result, the House of Representatives is incredibly tightly controlled. Everything that happens in the House of Representatives first has to go through what's called the Rules Committee, a committee that doesn't even exist in the Senate. What? I know, they don't even have a Rules Committee. And the Rules Committee is going to decide for any bill that comes out of committee if that bill is actually going to make it to the floor or not, what terms that bill will be argued under, and how much debate you're going to have. Now, when we say how much debate, you might be thinking two senators or two representatives are going to come up and debate and talk back and forth, but that never actually happens outside of Hollywood. And the House of Representatives, the most common rule we get is what's called a closed rule, meaning there's going to be no amendments allowed whatsoever, and they're going to allow somewhere around 15 minutes of debate. So you get 15 minutes of Republicans talking about the bill, 15 minutes of Democrats talking about the bill, and then you're going to have an up or down vote on the bill. And that's all you're going to get. Because if they actually allowed amendments, you have all these radicals from both sides there, nothing is ever going to happen. They've basically given up on trying to build consensus in the House of Representatives. House of Representatives is all about mobilizing your party and ramming through whatever you can. And the Speaker of the House, because of that, becomes enormously powerful. If the Speaker of the House doesn't like a bill, that bill is dead. Failure to act on a bill is the equivalent of killing a bill. So the Speaker of the House can just refuse to allow any bill to come to the floor so it'll never be voted on. And that's unless you do this thing called a discharge petition, but that's got to be in another episode. So thinking about midterm elections, if your party has the majority in the House, it's not just that you have an advantage when voting for legislation, right? Your party also holds the speaker's seat. And that means your party has more control over what bills even make it to the floor. Exactly. So how does power work in the Senate? The biggest difference between the House and the Senate is the way that the modern structure of the Senate really empowers individual senators. So you're in the Senate. There's 100 people. And if it's a normal bill that's been filibustered, so you have to get to cloture, the important person to be is the 60th voter. Basically, in order to stop a filibuster, you have to have three-fifths of the Senate vote on it. That's 60 members. You don't get any prize for being the 59th voter because only 59 supporters, well, the bill's not going to get passed. You don't get any prize for being the 68th supporter because they don't need you. They need exactly 60. So the question becomes, who is that 60th voter? Or in the case of one of the rare bills that's not subject uh, to the filibuster, who is the 50th voter? For example, confirmations cannot be filibustered. 
And that Inflation Reduction Act, that was considered a bill that couldn't be filibustered because it's what's called an appropriations bill. It has to do with the budget. To learn more about that, listen to our episode on the Senate Parliamentarian. And that 50th voter gets whatever they want. And this is what everyone's fighting to be. You want to be that 50th or that 60th supporter. You want to be the pivotal voter. Especially in a Senate that's divided as closely as the current Senate, there are lots of potential pivotal voters. And because of that, individual senators have an enormous amount of power. Now, this is, of course, not what the founders intended at all. The founders definitely intended the Senate to be a place where bills go to die, but they didn't intend to work this way. What they wanted was the Senate to make sure that the whims of the people didn't overwhelm the rights of the states. Today, it's much more about they want to make sure that the whims of the majority party don't overrule the rights and privileges of the minority party. In the House of Representatives, basically nobody's a pivotal voter. There's 435 voting members. The odds that the bill is going to come down to 218 versus 217, you are the 218th supporter? Boy, howdy, it just doesn't happen very often because Nancy Pelosi or the Speaker of the House knows what they're doing and they're not going to bring a bill to the floor if they don't already have all the votes lined up. However, Dan says that the people with the most power in the House tend to be those who have been there the longest. If you want any power in the House of Representatives, you have to serve for a long time, you have to rise up the ranks, you have to get to the head of a committee, and then you can shape a bill in committee and push it on the floor. We should also say, seniority is not the only thing anymore. So if I'm the Speaker of the House, my job is to protect my majority. And one of the ways I'm going to do that, I'm going to say, all right, you're a vulnerable member, you're, you're from a district that's a purple district, Cougar Republican, Cougar Democratic. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put you on the best possible committee. I'm going to help you get all that money back to your district. I'm going to put you on one of those AAA committees. So you're going to be on defense. You're going to be one of these other committees that can really deliver for your district. So as a voter, I'm not going to lose out on all the benefits by bringing someone new in, especially if it's a close district. Well, I'm going to get some of those benefits anyway, because the Speaker of the House is going to make sure to put that person in the committee where they can deliver for my district so that person can get reelected. We have reached the other big part of the job for both the House and the Senate, campaigning. We're going to talk about that and how to use your power as a voter to make sure your legislators are working for you right after this break. But before that break, a quick reminder that Civics 101 is listener-supported. If you like what we're doing, give in any amount at our website, civics101podcast.org, or just click the link in the show notes. All right, so senators have a six-year term, and representatives have to run for re-election every two years, meaning that every two years, the entire House and about a third of the Senate is up for re-election. Doesn't campaigning take up a lot of their time? Oh, yeah. Dan said that elected officials can spend up to five or six hours a day to stay in office in both the House and the Senate. Here's former state rep and CNN political analyst Bakari Sellers. Let me just say that when you're in the House of Representatives, the campaigns never end. Um, You're in a perpetual sense of campaigning uh, because it's that two year period. You don't stop. You don't take a reprieve. You win an election and you you move on to the next elections. If you want to run for the House, the big thing you have to have is name recognition in your community, in a relatively small community, 700,000 people for most House seats. People have to know who you are, and you have to be able to knock on doors and mobilize people to knock on doors for you. So what does it take to campaign for the Senate? Oh, 
for if you're campaigning for United States Senate, you should have been campaigning your entire life. Uh, there's <laughs> there's no uh, there's no waiting until the filing period. Some and I love to see that you have these like billionaires or millionaires who um, or people who have this amazing sense of self, and they wait until the filing period, which is usually like March for a June or July or August primary. And they think they can just parachute in and run a race and spend money on TV. If you want to run for the Senate, the big thing you need is either be really rich yourself or to know a whole lot of rich people. Because that Senate race is going to cost you tens of millions of dollars and you're never going to be able to knock on enough doors. So the types of candidates you get are going to be very, very different. This is also one of the reasons why we see a lot more women running for the House than we do for the Senate. While women are able to mobilize uh, other voters just as well as anyone else, they actually have a harder time raising money because they don't necessarily have the business connections because of lots of other things going wrong in our society that would let them easily run for the Senate. And that doesn't just affect gender in the Senate. It's You can literally still count um, on less than two hands, but you know, if you go back in history and you, you're talking about Ed Brooke and Mo Cowan and Carol Mosley Braun and Cory Booker and Kamala Harris and Tim Scott, I just ran through uh, there may be one that I'm missing or two, but I just ran through the African-American members of the United States Senate um, in history. And so um, it's a very it's a very deliberative body, um, but it's also a very old white male body as well. Usually there's a sense of patriarchy that puts you in a position to run for that office. And as of this recording, August 2022, there have been 11 total black U.S. senators. Ever. 11 total in the history of the country. In the history of the nation. And though both the House and the Senate have gotten more diverse over the last couple of elections, there's still a long way to go. Currently, we have 11 non-white senators. And in the House, 33% of representatives are non-white. And that group includes a lot of newly elected legislators. So, Hannah, as I was making this episode and hearing about all the things the House and the Senate have power to do and the sheer volume of hours and money that goes both into the work and constant campaigning, personally, it struck me that as a voter, it was really easy for me to feel disconnected from what's happening at the Capitol building and that any kind of progress or responsiveness to issues that I cared about was frustratingly slow. So this is something I asked Dan. Is this how it's supposed to work? Is this system broken? And if so, what about it is broken? Can we fix it? So Congress is working as intended. This is what the founders wanted. Not the way it works, right? They didn't want parties. They were very much against parties. But the idea that the House proposes a bunch of bills, there's a bunch of things that can pass the House, nothing can pass the Senate, therefore nothing happens. That's exactly what the founders wanted. They wanted a government, a federal government that didn't do anything, left everything up to the states because they didn't trust the federal government. They wanted the states to have more power. The problem is that this is a 18th century form of government working in the 21st century. But that's not what the public necessarily wants now. The public doesn't want a government that can't do anything. I think people on both sides of the aisle, right? Republicans very much want a government that can do something about undocumented immigration, that can do something about cutting taxes and red tape. Democrats definitely want a government that can do something about climate change. You can have a government that is more efficient, but we are not designed to do that. Dan reiterated to me that sometimes this inefficiency is a good thing in that it makes legislators work for something that could have broad appeal. 
again, this is not necessarily a bad thing for everyone. It's not a bad thing because if you think about the Inflation Reduction Act, this is a bill that was actually heavily negotiated between wings of the party, between relatively liberal people and relatively conservative people, and brought together a whole bunch of people and got Democrats largely what they wanted and got policy outcomes that were, I think, amenable to most of the American public. And again, the Inflation Reduction Act didn't even have to be filibuster-proof. If you negotiate, if you have to get 60 votes, I'm not sure you get something that looks anything like that. So this is the flip side that the inefficiency can make it really hard to pass any legislation at all or legislation that anyone is happy about. Think about the most recent gun control bill. Yeah, okay, there's a gun control bill that literally no one was happy with. It doesn't go nearly far enough because this requirement to get to 60 votes. So is the House and Senate working the way it's supposed to? Yes. Is that a good thing? Not necessarily, right? Because it does mean we wind up with a very inefficient government. So for a final question, I asked Dan, so what? What's the upshot in all of this? Where does that leave us as voters? This is important to remember. Politicians are a cowardly and superstitious lot. They are terrified, all of them, at all times, that they will lose their re-election bid. Even the people in the safest seats, if they see the slightest chance they're going to lose— they start to shape up and they start to get very responsive very, very quickly. I'll give an example from here in New Jersey. We have a representative, a guy named Don Payne. And Don Payne represents mostly Newark. Um, and Don Payne is in a Don Payne Jr. because his father had the seat before him. He is not going to lose election. He is going to win that election. He is, doesn't even face challenges in the Republican Party. He is set. Because of that, he's been a little complacent. So he has the highest absenteeism rate over the course of his career of any member of the House of Representatives. There's some years where he doesn't show up for 40% of the votes. He just doesn't go to work. Does he win? Yeah, of course he does, because there's no one challenging him. This past election cycle, there was a young woman who was very much inspired by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who went and started knocking on doors in his district, running against him in the primary. My name is Imani Oakley. I'm a candidate running for Congress in New Jersey's 10th Congressional District. And one thing that most people don't know about New Jersey and New Jersey elections is that we have the most corrupt ballot design in the United Now, she was underfunded. She was literally just, she and some volunteers knocking on some doors. And you know what happened? Don Payne, for the first time in years, started doing interviews, like he went and talked to the press. He started raising lots of money. He started talking to voters. He started showing up to work. He hasn't missed a vote this past year because he's so scared that someone is coming for his seat in the safest possible seat you could have. He's still scared. Politicians are a cowardly and superstitious lot. If they get any inkling that someone is coming for them, they are going to shape up and they're going to do what their voters want to do. By voting against someone who is going to win, by giving money to a candidate who has no chance, you are scaring your representative. You are getting them in line. Even if they're not the party you like, they're going to start voting the way you want them to vote because they're scared of losing their seat. Even if you can't change them, who they are, you can change the behavior by scaring the bejesus out of your representatives. And that's the way to actually make a difference in Washington. This episode was written and produced by me, Nick Capodice, with Christina Phillips and Hannah McCarthy. Our staff includes Jackie Fulton, and Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. 
Music for this episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions, Creo, they did that house music in the beginning, Broke for Free, Jazar, Electric Needle Room, Isaac Elliott, Bonkers Beat Club, Alfie J. Winters, Ariolite Fields, Katiso, Xylozico, and Cosp. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio.